Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. This is episode 124 of the podcast. Will is with me this morning. It's a Saturday morning. Will, how are you? Good morning. Good morning. I'm doing well. Extremely well. Been under the weather all week, but starting to come through it today for the first time. I woke up without congestion and sneezing, so yeah. drunk some tea this morning, so I feel pretty good. I, I liked what you said. We were talking a little bit ago, and you said the first day you had to push through it, and the second day you had to power through it. I was like, that's, that's yeah. a good way to, to describe it. So we are... I just uh, have to say... Oh, go. No, I'll just say, I just have to thank goodness I have a great set of kids that when I just expressed to them what was going on with me, they were 100% supportive and just like, hey, we got this, Mr. Law. You go ahead and you get better. We're just happy that you didn't take off. So... Mm-hmm. Like I say, it made it, it made the made the power through and the push through a whole lot easier having a great group of kids to work with. So awesome. Well, we're super thrilled um, and excited to have Tiffany Jewell as our guest on the podcast this morning. Tiffany, yeah. how are you? I'm good. Yeah. Awesome. Early. Yeah, it is. It is. But we were we were kind of we Wilkie's schedule is busy and my schedule is busy and and you were saying that at some point you might get interrupted by your kids so we understand that you know you know the value of of an early morning so we'll uh we'll definitely try to be respectful of your time and and get into it quickly so just to get everyone started can you just give us a little bit of your background and and the reasons why you became a teacher yeah um I was one of those kids who whenever I came home from school I played school until it was like time for dinner <laughs> and my poor I have a twin sister and my sister would play with me or the dolls my mom whoever um and then kind of over time I thought uh I started taking a lot of math and science courses and I thought I was going to go into medical research and started when I was in college I took a bunch of science classes and I realized that um being in a lab late at night wasn't for me (laughs) and that I really wasn't and I went to like um my I went to two colleges and the first one was an all women's college it was like small in the middle of like the Finger Lakes region and so it was like also really creepy in the science lab at night I was like oh I can't do this um, and then I realized that I really liked working with people and I started um, working in schools and tutoring kids and it, it was just like I've always meant to be a teacher um, and when I was in college I had the opportunity to study abroad in what I call the motherland because my mom's from England so um, I, I was able to teach third graders in England and I realized like that was the age um, and since then, I've been working with little kids. I always thought I, if I was a teacher, I'd be a high school teacher. Um, it felt less daunting than an elementary teacher trying to, like, know all of the subjects. Right. Uh, those third graders in London, like, they turned me around. <laughs> yeah. I, I think if I could go back, I've said this a bunch of times, I, I would have I at least studied abroad for a semester, if not taught abroad. Um, I think that's the one thing that I really wish I would have done because after I have, you know, I've done more traveling now and I, you just can't duplicate that experience. So what was that, what was that like, like teaching in England? It was awesome. Um, 
we grew up, uh, it was like my sister and I in a single parent home um, and our mom and her family are all immigrants. Like she came over to the country on a boat. Um, and uh, it was a really awesome experience to be able to go to the place where she was born. And I got to spend time with my relatives who still live in England. And then teaching kids, um, I worked at a school that was, um, it was called Ashburnham Primary School, but it was in a part of London that they called the World's End. It was along the Thames River. And um, it was where like originally like a lot of like dock workers and um, immigrants came. And um, the school was surrounded by council housing. So there were like three or four towers surrounding the school where a bunch of the students lived. And um, a lot of my, most of my students were from all over the world. I think there were maybe three students who were born in, in England and the rest were from all over. And it was um, a really humbling experience and it was um, really awesome to like, uh, to have conversations with these like nine-year-olds about how they had to escape Kosovo or um, what it was like I learned a lot about um, different different religions and different countries just from like having conversations with the students while we were walking to places. Um, and it was the kind of experience that like I could, I, I could never duplicate again. And, uh, and when I was done working with, like when I had to come back to, to the States and when I was done working there, I, I wanted to have that again. I, um, I really love the teacher I worked with too. And, and um, so I've been growing from that ever since. It was really cool. Do you, do you think that experience of, of your mom being an immigrant and, and working with those kids who were immigrants and, and fleeing some of those um, kind of more war-torn places, do you think that impacts the work you do now? I think so. I, I definitely like reflect on that experience a lot and share it with my students now. And I also, we do a lot of work in, in my classroom on like talking about immigration. And so I get to share those stories. I think uh, being a, like a child of an immigrant, um, there's some things like my sister and I were the first ones to graduate from four-year college the first ones to move away from the family um so the like the patterns kind of changed and um while like everybody's like our family's like almost all still living in Syracuse and um and, and very close and tight like we're kind of recreating the pattern that my grandparents did like moving away um you know uh staying in touch with family but um yeah, being a child of of an immigrant and kind of a family, like our Thanksgivings were always different. <laughs> um, and like when my partner, who's from New England, first went there, he was like, "What is this?" Because <laughs> we didn't. It was just a time where we had like all had time off, and we could get together as a family and um, celebrating the story or the myth of Thanksgiving was not something we felt like was really important. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, the 
New England in him was like, what is this? Um, so like definitely like it all impacted what I do. And it also, I think um, growing up with a, a single parent and um, like you are working class poor. And I just think like everything in my life kind of led me to where, what I'm doing now. And that was definitely had a big impact on it, but wasn't like the only part that affected me. Mm. Yeah, I think I, 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 listening to your story, you know, I, I, I chuckled because I think that when you're grown, when you grow up in those culturally sensitive and culturally conscious of what's going on and how things go, it shifts when you are working with the next generation. I know with me, my experience, it's like I want to provide them with so much more to enlighten them so much more because it's like, hey, guys, when I was your age, I really was not exposed to this or I didn't find this until later. So it's like I, you want to it's like that push to almost want to really solidify that type of learning within them, you know, right now. Yeah. So do you do you find that I know you do third grade, but how receptive are the students when you introduce those kind of I mean, which really are deep real world issues but how do they respond to that uh i teach first second third i have a multi-age classroom oh, oh wow yeah it's pretty fun um and they're it's, it's really amazing they're really receptive to it and i would say um they're maybe more receptive than adults because i partly because I have my students for three years uh, and their families, we have a, a relationship that um, like, that we can really work on building trust with each other. And so they trust me and we do a lot of work. Um, so I like explicitly teach about immigration or racism, gender equity, um, social or economic justice. But before that, we do a lot of work around identity and um so i share a lot of myself with my students i think it's really important that like any one of my students can see a part of themselves in me um, and that we can relate to each other that way like we can trust each other and we can build off of that and um, when i was a kid i didn't have like any teachers like i'm biracial and i didn't have any teachers who looked or reflected me at all or all like middle-class white ladies and I had one male teacher um and uh and like I remember like one of my teachers always talking about how great her like suburban life was and like how her schools her kids school got to go on like a bunch of field trips and we're like sitting in our classes not going anywhere um she was the worst by the way <laughs> um and it was like I kind of when I was teaching those students in London, like I was seeing a little bit of myself in all of those students. And I realized that's what I wanted my students to have that feeling too. And to be able to relate and like have an adult in your life who isn't like your, your family or who you can be like, hey, I can go to this person and I can trust them and I can trust myself if I'm having a hard time or um, I have, um, we have, quite a few students at our school who um, don't look like their parents because they're adopted. Uh, there's transracial uh, um, adoption. And 
you know, if you're a brown student who's growing up with white parents, to be able to see like a brown teacher and to be able to talk about skin color is really, um, is really and uh, so we like do a lot of the identity work before we touch on the, the subject and kind of by then um like this this march we're doing our history of racism and anti-racism and by then like they also have the ability to talk about themselves and their place in the earth um and kind of like understand like what am i doing here and why do i look like this and who am i um to be able to to look at history then um and kind of go I don't like dive right in on those deep subjects right away we spend a whole bunch of time like community building and looking at ourselves well I think that's the big thing one of the things that I talk to my kids about I teach sixth grade math GT and regular um and I kind of have the spectrum I have some extreme low kids and I have some extreme high kids and I spent the entire first two months of school pretty much talking about the mirror. And I would tell them, you know, when you're when you're going through your day, when you wake up in the morning, the very first thing you should do is look in the mirror. Understand your understand who you are. And you can tell when the kids really grasp that because teaching on those deeper issues almost kind of comes organically because they begin to see things differently because now I see myself versus I'm trying to force you to see something else that you can't even understand because you don't even look in the mirror and see, make the connection with the person that's looking back at you. At you, And I think that that's something that's rare in education where teachers are taking time to spend that time. I can't teach you math content if I don't know, you don't know who you are. Because I have to show you how you as an individual connects to the math that I'm teaching. And I think that's a big difference. And I can say, I, when we first, I think it was a few months ago, we interviewed someone that, that talked about the monastery uh, mm-hmm. schools. And I think that's one of the big draws for that mm-hmm. is that sense of giving them who they are and letting them explore that and grow organically from that. Yeah. yeah. Like autonomy is a big part of yes. the goals of monastery. <laughs> and as a teacher, I get to practice that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is really and and I like I know I work in an independent school so I have like the luxury of time I don't have to teach to test um and I like always recognize that I have that that luxury that a lot of teachers don't have mm-hmm. do you do you feel like it's you know the the social justice piece or identity do you do you feel like newer teachers who are coming into the profession are are getting better with it because you know me like I grew up with the the epitome of of privilege like I grew up in a stable you know two parent home good siblings you know never financially wanting for anything you know and like I'm a white male like I I am I'm the epitome of privilege my first job though is in Houston where I'm teaching 90% Hispanic kids and 10% African American kids. And there was such, it took me years to kind of even just start to bridge the gap between us. So I'm wondering, do you, do you feel like they, the, the teachers that are coming into the profession now are, are getting a better grasp of it or it in some semblance it's being taught to them? 
like definitely in in Montessori, I'm gonna say no. <laughs> I think that as in as people and individuals, we are more conscious of what's happening in the world thanks to social media. Like when when we were kids, like when I was growing up, we didn't even have <laughs> I didn't have a computer until. Um, like I used the computer in college um, and uh, I know I had one maybe like I remember working all summer and saving my money for a used computer like, when I was a junior or something um, but uh, I think that I think some teacher education programs and here's the thing is like none of them are the same like there's no standards some of them are great and some of them have amazing um, teachers like at UMass Amherst, which is near where I live, um, University of Massachusetts, there's a whole social justice education program. Oh. And it's been around for a while and it has like, amazing people. And Dr. Barbara Love helped to found it, and Bailey Jackson and Sonia Nieto um, taught there. And um, it's an amazing group of people, but it's like not the typical teacher education program. And it's not. It, that that kind of work isn't what's required of people to become teachers. Like they're still teaching a bunch of um, classes on behavior management instead of how to um, connect with your students and um, giving teachers tools to um, to think flexibly and and, and quickly and, and differently and instead of trying to manage little bodies. And um, in Montessori there's like even probably less of that is the Montessori curriculum is in pedagogy it's like over 100 years and there are some um some teacher but again like the teacher education programs in Montessori are very different and there are some that are starting to come up which I'm really excited about that are are starting to do the work of Montessori through a social justice lens um but most of the times when we talk, when we even ask to be, talk about social justice in Montessori, it's kind of like, um, well, we have peace education and that's, that's enough, isn't it? If we just talk about being peaceful, then, then they'll get it. And, um, what I think a lot of folks don't go deep into is, uh, Dr. Montessori talked a lot about justice as the work of um, peace like you can't have peace without social justice and she even writes about um, the work of a teacher is to constantly work on tearing out your deeply rooted defects and uh. that is like you know it's it's it, it's there are different interpretations of that but my understanding and in the context that she wrote it like that would be our biases and all of the like baggage that we bring on and you know um the way that we perceive and interact with our students. She's asking us to like do that. She called it the spiritual preparation of the teacher. And, um, and that part, like the philosophy part of Montessori in our teaching ed programs is often what um, there's not enough time for. So we have like an hour long discussion on the philosophy and how to be a prepared teacher. And then you get all these like lessons on how to like be technically proficient. Um, there are like there are some um, teacher ed programs that are starting to really look at the teacher uh, the spiritual preparation 
um, because I can read my albums and my lessons and perform the lesson very technically and proficiently if I need to, but um, if I have the ability to pause and look at myself and observe myself, like I will become a much better teacher. It doesn't really matter if I lay the Stamsky and tiles out in the exact order every time. Mm. Yeah. So I'm going to say no. <laughs> I think people are, I think we are more conscious. <coughs> I don't think the programs are um, shifting as quickly as we need them to. And you know, I, I'll go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Well, I'll I'll come back. No, to my I, just, I, I just wanted to I just wanted to kind of extend that because I was as I'm listening to you, I'm working with uh, I've had the privilege of working with two student teachers this school year uh, who come in observe for two weeks, uh, one for three weeks, one for two weeks, and one of the things that I stressed to them about teaching was that you cannot go into teaching without first being who you are because your classroom is not your curriculum. Your classroom is an extension of who you are and you're inviting your students into a learning space. And so I encouraged them to create a space that's authentic to them. And both times they said that's something that they had never heard of. But for me, I came through it, you know, I wasn't, classically trained teacher, so to speak. You know, I didn't, I didn't know pedagogy until I went to an alternative certification program and it's, it blew my mind. What is this word? I can't even pronounce it, you know, in the beginning. But when I first got into the classroom, all I knew was me. And I think that was the greatest advantage I had as a teacher was that I knew me and I welcomed my students into a space of me. And I think helping them see me helped me to see them and them to see themselves, which created this learning environment. And I don't think that's being taught. You know, I think that, you know, I, I don't say, I don't, I don't think it is. I know it's not because, you know, the student teachers I've seen and I've experienced, they're not being told that, you know, we're still trying to get that cookie cutter, um, uh, teacher's college type of, no, no, not against teacher's college, but they kind of standardized method of teaching without thinking about we don't have standardized kids. Yep. <laughs> you know, there's no standardized person. So how can we have a standardized testing system that ranks them based on a standard that, yeah. yeah. I don't know if we recognize that the kids aren't standardized though. Mm. I think the programs, I think, you know, when you look at like the history of education, a lot of times, our schools and the different pedagogies that came around were created during that like industrial time mm -hmm. to, um, to create future workers. And like I was talking to a, a parent at our school the other day about a different um, alternative pedagogy. And we were, re we were um, really reflecting on how at that time, like when the Montessori philosophy and, and Dr. Marana story started working with children, all these like educational practices came about to really support children who were the children of industrial workers and to, to kind of have them fit that mold and become good citizens. And Dr. Montessori at the time was working in the slums of Italy and working with children that nobody wanted to work with. And she was observing them and seeing what, um, like they were children who were hungry, they were angry, they had um, learning disabilities. And she was 
really looking and observing working with them to see how she can meet their needs like how could they um how could they not be hungry how could they take care of themselves how could they take care of each other and so instead of like trying to get these children to fit the mold of um, factory workers she was trying to find ways to support the children so they could be whole children they like think of like Montessori and that's like hopefully the goal of all the Montessori teachers and, and teacher ed programs is to like see and teach like a whole child um it's not always because they're because we put ourselves into it um but I always think of like the difference in, and other people may disagree with me <laughs> but Right. But you know what? That's okay. It's okay to disagree. That's the lesson we just taught in my classroom. It's like, it's okay to rebut someone's statement, but you do it in a way that still honors their voice. Yeah. And, 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 and like I say, I think, again, those conversations are the conversations that are not being had in a lot of classrooms. So we're kind of perpetuating the reality TV classroom that we, that we see in a lot, especially in a lot of our urban settings where the reality TV becomes a student's reality and they become so detached from what is real reality, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, I like the first, second, third graders. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had an opportunity this year to do that and I chose not to. Um, I was supposed to go down to elementary and they gave me a choice between elementary and middle school and I teeter-tottered for a while and I said, eh. I think I'll stay with the middle school kids because I think you have to be, you have to know your, your niche and that's not really mine. Um, but I, I respect and honor those who, those of you who battle the, <laughs> the younger kids. So I, I've been kind of thinking, I have how to phrase this next question. I'm going to butcher it, but so like for someone for someone like you know that looks like me i'm i'm a white male you're talking about you know sharing your identity with kids so as you know a person like myself who just like in the last year is really starting to understand what privilege even meant and like you know i'm in my mid 30s for these new teachers you know especially ones that look like me and you know especially ones that are going into the urban setting like i did you know as they're unpacking their identity, should they be kind of, do you think they should be sharing that work that they're doing with their kids to try to, to bridge that gap? Definitely. Um, and they're like still, like I still have, um, there are parts of my identity that have power and privilege and parts that don't. And it's really important for me to share that whole self with my students in that journey. And I think about like when I was in college and I was, to, um, taking teacher ed classes, I was the only person of the global majority in my class. I was the only person who had like a single parent household. I was the only, so I was like representing all these different like borderland identities. And instead of um, my white counterparts in the class um, recognizing that they had power and privilege and being able to unpack that, like I was always asked to call on and explain what it was like to like live in as, as we say like mm. or like have those identities and to like speak for their future students because me as one person can like tell them exactly what like every like brown children every poor child every single parent like every child of an immigrant like um and that was 
that was like one reason <laughs> that was when I realized I wanted to go to different like alternative education route but um like I have I work really most of the teachers at my school are white many of my students are white um and it's really powerful and important to share that journey I think you know you as a, a white male you can say like the culture the dominant culture was created for me and I get to benefit from um, I get to walk around society I get to walk around the street and nobody bats an eye and they feel like I'm, they're safe with me and um, people trust me they don't know me but they trust me because of how I look and and then asking your students the question like and what do you think about that like should should people trust me if they don't know me um and then really breaking like breaking it down I once like had a white male student I think he was a third second or third grader at the time and we were talking about racism and he like sat back and he was like it's all about power people don't want to give up power and he had this like kind of like aha moment and because he was able to come to it because we had shared like stories um, I had shared my story my white um co-teacher shared her story and um because we were sharing our full selves like he was able to come to this realization and also like he got money into it and then his white classmates were like whoa like you're right and then I talked to his parents afterwards and they were like we had a great discussion at dinner time and 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 like starting to like change they were like he wanted to immediately change the way they do some things in their family and they were like okay um so it's so important to like share that journey and if you know if you work with a three-year-old you may not be able to share it fully but then you can also share it with your coworkers. You can share it with your parents. Um, a lot of the white teachers I know are starting to do um, kind of like white book groups where they're like reading Witnessing Whiteness or White Fragility and having conversations about what it means to be a white teacher. Um, and there are some like really hard moments in there for them. Um, and I, I think there's, um, I think it's really important to have to have those conversations otherwise if you don't talk about it then you're just like reinforcing like this is the normal this is the dominant culture and that's what we want to undo yeah and it was so crazy you know because in the in the last year i i moved back home from texas back to wisconsin and i had a teaching job and and then i got non-renewed for that job and i was kind of like like, oh, you know, okay. But I never once was like, I don't know if I'll be able to get another job doing anything. And, and then as I, you know, like I said, I, I read uh, or listened to the auto, audio of White Fragility and I'm like, the only reason I have that opportunity to get, you know, really, I, I can go anywhere around the area that I live and get a good like blue collar job that pays me 15 to $20 an hour without breaking a sweat. And I'm just like, it, it, you don't realize that that's not, not the case for everyone. And, and even just like I was talking to, we had a, a teacher named Gary Gray on our podcast last week, who is, a, um, you know, he's a, a black man from Canada that teaches in Singapore. And, and Wilkie, this is something, you know, we've been friends five years and I never heard you ever talk about the way you grew up when you 
had encounters with the police. Like I've known you five years and I've never heard you tell that story. And it's just like, those kind of things are really like, just it, it gets, I'm, I'm like, man, I gotta be more aware of just what, what I've been given. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm raising two white boys. My son, my partner's white. My sons are white presenting and walk through the world as white. And for as long as my, my oldest is seven, as long as he's been able to talk, we've been talking about like the privilege that he has, the power he has as a white person. Um, and I think <laughs> like it's really important to start when they're young. And, you know, like the, it started with, um, Michael Kiwanuka's song Black Man in a White World and um and we were like listening to it and he was like what does that mean and so we're like talking about it and then I'm just like going he was like four at the time going about talking about the um I think it was like around like when Columbus Castile was shot and um that one like really hit home deeply because he was also like a brother in the Montessori community and um and his child was in the car like that one like my and it was the summer so my children were around me and like our baby was our toddler was a baby then and we just had these like big conversations about it and started making plans like you know whenever he saw like we saw a black cop like the next day and he was like we should be nice to him because I don't think the other cops are as nice to him and so we like open the window and he sees like saying hi and um and just like having these conversations with the younger they are like you're kind of opening their consciousness like I'm not trying to like plant my agenda into him um but I'm just like having these conversations is opening his consciousness and I think like all of our students are um like all of my students are younger than me and so like when we have these conversations I'm just like like sparking a new interest in them um and supporting their families and having these conversations but like just like as a white person <coughs> unpacking it and sharing your story and looking at like how you can shift power um because like as soon as you like thinking of how you can make that shift and your students will your I know that my students always have better solutions than I do. Mm. Like my, my own children do. <laughs> so like if you can share, like I, there's this problem. I'm really struggling with this as a, as a white person. I don't want everything to be centered around me. And your students will probably start coming up with ideas on how to shift that immediately in the classroom. Yeah, you know. And, and just being aware, like... It just like the vote with with the elections coming up and voting like I never thought of Wisconsin as a state where voter suppression would be a thing, but it is and it's apparently like really bad and I live I'm only about 45 minutes from Minneapolis St. Paul so I'm much more connected to that kind of community, but yeah. to me I'm like what you know what can I do when you know people in my state are being suppressed and then you have like because I, I at my privilege always told me that like voter suppression only happens in the south like it's still yeah. left over from that era and and it's just like it, it's 
crazy for me. And I know like the first thing I can do is vote in two weeks. Like that's something I have to do, but then it, it comes to that question of like, it, it's just breaking, like you said, breaking myself of those stereotypes and those things that I believe like, Oh, Wisconsin is this sweet and wonderful place. But um, I don't remember Will who we were talking to one time at a conference, but like Wisconsin is one of the most segregated States in the country. Because yeah, I remember mm-hmm. be, because the vast majority of the black and brown people live in Milwaukee. They're in that one little 10 to 15 mile area, you know, and it's just, it's, it's something. I remember looking at the statistics for Wisconsin and it is like one of the worst states to um, live and work in if you are a brown or black person, Um, just because there's a lot, because there is like that deeply rooted um, segregation and uh, and I was looking at the statistics because Syracuse, New York, where I grew up, is like very similar to that. It's like one of the worst places to live if you are a black person or brown person because you get you, the like your income level is much lower than than white folks. Um, but uh, yeah, your state is. We're not we're not doing super good right now. No, no. But um, you know, I'm I'm. I, yeah yeah i'm hoping that um i'm hoping that things will change but i'm I'm looking at it and we're like getting past the 40 minute mark so i definitely want to make sure we're respectful of your time so i do i do want to ask you uh before we let you go um to talk a little bit about montessori for social justice and kind of what that organization does and how teachers can connect with them yeah um it is (laughs) it's so much (laughs) montessori for social justice like it started, I can't even remember, maybe like six or seven years ago. And we had, I just like put the history on the website the other day. Um, and it started at a conference and kind of having conversations about, at a Montessori conference, like why aren't we talking about social justice in Montessori spaces? And it's really grown since then. Um, like we have a, an annual conference every year. This last year we were in St. Paul at St. Catherine's um, Mm -hmm. College and uh, this year we're going to be in Portland, Oregon and uh, we try we go different places every year to make sure we can be accessible to different um, regions in the country and um, we formally formed a board last year and if you go to our website montessoriforsocialjustice.org like you'll see the board and it looks like no other board in the montessori um, community in this country because we have two white ladies and everybody else is a person of the golden majority and it's so exciting to be working in solidarity with so many amazing black and brown folks in montessori one thing i always hear is like um, you know, we question conferences, like, why are all your keynotes white? And why are they old white men? And they're like, well, we, we don't know any, brown, nobody's come to us. And I'm like, look at our board. Like, we are, there are nine of us who are black and brown. And, um, and so we just uh, worked on creating our mission this year. And then I'm going to read it to you because I love it. This is the one thing I prepared. (laughs) Um, That we support the creation of sustainable learning environments that dismantle systems of oppression, amplify voices of the global majority, and cultivate partnerships to liberate the human potential. And 
Isn't it beautiful? Yes, <laughs> that's really well crafted. And uh, um, and there's a lot of work that we have to do as a board. We're um, filed for a nonprofit status. We're going to do some major strategic planning and fundraising. Um, but our one of the biggest things that we are doing right now is um, not let not being silent. So any many of us um, present and go to different conferences, and we found that lately the um, only things that people want us to, to share and present are um, about social justice, even though we're all experts in other fields too. Like I could talk about readers' workshops like nobody else, um, and and, uh, and can also like I've been an elementary Montessori teacher for over a decade. Like I've got some experience, but they only want us to talk about anti-bias, anti-racist work because we're black and brown. Um, and one of the best ways people can connect with us, we have a Facebook group that um, where people can ask questions um, and connect with the community, get resources. Um, our conference, I think, is it's grown from um, two years ago. There were about 120 participants, and last year we sold out at like about 350 participants, um, and it was amazing. We had. Our keynote speakers, Lorena and Roberta Herman, um, are Black Latinx folks, and we really—it's um, really important to us to highlight and share the voices of people who are um, underrepresented in the Montessori community. And um, so we also. We, we work all over the country. And so many of us are like organizing in our small pockets. One of our board members has um, kind of like online classes called Embracing Equity. And there's a starting like an Embracing Identity cohort. Um, there's another, many of us work with an organization called Crossroads Anti-Racism and bring their trainings to our communities. Um, and so we're like slowly expanding outwards too. But one of our, our secretary um, who works at City Garden Montessori in St. Louis, she's um, a group called the Montessori Leadership Collaborative where it's like 14 big Montessori organizations and she's really doing and pushing them to think differently, um, to, to think equitably, to, um, to do the work of your identity so you can do the work of anti-bias anti-racist work because a lot of like organizations and people are like, well, i just want to start in and like just give me the lesson to do anti-racist work in the classroom and i'm set we're, we're all like nope you gotta work on yourself first and it's right really hard yeah. yeah and so teachers can connect um with us kind of online is a lot of the ways that we do it we want to make sure we're accessible to everybody our conferences and we just put a the call for proposals um you know actually i need to put that on the website too um but the conference is such a great way to build a community and a network of folks it's happens it's happening the like june 22nd i think um so it happens like when school's over and you're still like thinking about school and then you get to have your whole summer to like process and build on your knowledge um, and our keynotes are always folks of the global majority we offer a, um, a pre-conference 
retreat for folks of the global majority. Last year we created our, um, we did a writer's workshop with Ricardo um, and Lorena. And then at the same time, there was a, a, a decentering whiteness group. So there, like, there's this group of white teachers who are learning about what it means to be white and how to like unpack that and decenter that. And those were both like free components of the conference that you didn't have to pay extra for it. Wow. We and we really do like food is included. I think the conference tickets like two hundred fifty, but we have scholarships for folks of the global majority so they don't have to pay. Um, our housing was really cheap last year. St. Catherine was amazing and offered like $40 a night housing on campus. And then we were able to like support people that way too. And because mm -hmm. we were on campus, we didn't have to pay for um, transportation either. So we right. do, we work super hard to make it a very affordable conference for all. We offered free childcare last year for folks. Um, wow. Childcare at a conference is like this, it's, it felt like a very revolutionary act to um, provide that for families. And um, we're hoping in the future that we can actually include youth and children into the conference because we're, we're talking about them and we're doing work around them like they need to be here. And we actually did have um, a presentation with middle schoolers last year and we're hoping to expand on that too. Wow. Awesome. We're trying to, we're, we're growing. We have, and our strategic planning will help us focus our growth. Mm. Uh, but it's amazing. I love working with, with everybody. Like, please go to the workshop, or not the workshop, the website, um, which I'll, I'm going to be updating with new bios and pictures too. So, but Perfect. And it, it's just Montessori for social, social justice. That's like the website, right? Yeah. And if you just. <coughs> social justice that comes up first too perfect yeah, yeah awesome yeah awesome well i feel like that's a really good kind of spot to end on will any uh last thoughts you want to add before we let tiffany get on with her day um no i just want to thank you this was amazing i um i love this work you're you're, you're combining two things that are very near and dear to me with um montessori which is new to me and social justice um and also like it, it's kind of i've been a big fan of dr emden uh christopher emden uh and you know the whole hip-hop ed movement yeah, and awesome. it's like to me that would be the only link to kind of bring in a conference that kind of put all of that together for for teachers especially for teachers of color you know we know that we are we are a minority within the teaching field um and but we are a strong need in the teaching field because you know i think you know when he talks about the urbanization of, of our schools how that urban environment has seeped in and you know i know even kyle in wisconsin we were talking about some of the things that the behaviors that his kids displayed in rural wisconsin <clears throat> were very on par to what i was experiencing because of social media because of the internet because of what the kids are exposed to um you know, through music and hip hop being the fastest growing and largest, most dominating genre of music. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that <clears throat> we may have to do some kind of collaboration. Maybe we need to reach out and, and bring some people together and, uh, mm -hmm. and really, yeah. you know, light a fire under education and say, hey, look, you, got, you have to look at us. Yeah. You know, right. we're, we're important. <clears throat> we're important. You have to look at what we're doing and what we can contribute 
to this uh, to the voice of teachers. Because yeah, we're so. not going away. <laughs> By far, we're not going away. <laughs> I mean, we are the global majority, so we're just going to get bigger and bigger. Absolutely, right. right. Um, the other thing I wanted to share is I um, I created a kind of like a curriculum that I use in my classroom that I share with other educators for free. Uh, it's like the history, it's a full framework in the history of racism and anti-racism. And so like it starts with like the Haudenosaunee Great Law of Peace and ends with what I'm like today. <laughs> um, and a lot of it is kind of, um, it goes really well with Ibram X. Kendi's stamp from the beginning of <laughs> history. But it also includes like the history of um, like Asian Americans and Latinx Americans and um, indigenous folks and it's um it's something that like it keeps growing so i i do like these free trainings like every other month uh and there are about like 150 to 200 teachers now who have this for their classroom uh, my hope awesome. is like it can keep spreading out and like i have built it in the montessori in my montessori classroom but there are a lot of public education teachers who are using it now which is awesome and that's like the other thing that Montessori for Social Justice is trying to do is like have these resources that can be redistributed to everybody because like one of the um, the mainstays of the dominant culture is the hoarding of resources and we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I just wanted to share that before we go and and is that on the Montessori for social justice website um no it's on my website which is like anti-bias montessori.com and like anti-bias montessori.com and i just like finished the october training so the next one's in december um, and i always like shout it out on like instagram and twitter and right and and your your instagram is anti-bias montessori right yeah awesome so in, in our in our notes for the podcast we'll we'll link up every possible website we can find that you talked about we'll go back and listen again but man we we super appreciate the time and and if there's you know if there's more people from your organization that want to come on and want to talk we would love to have them and just kind of can continue the conversation like i said i'm i'm learning and and trying to do the best that i can so will anything you want to wrap up with no we're good i think i think we put a pretty good stamp on this one yeah. <laughs> awesome well, <laughs> yeah. awesome awesome well thank you so much again tiffany for taking some time with us this morning and coming on our podcast yeah thank you for having me it's been it's awesome. Super quiet, so <laughs> and my daughter's having a sleepover upstairs, and they haven't even moved yet. So they probably didn't go to bed till like three o'clock. So That's we're great. good. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I get you're right. <laughs> cool.